My name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, I've been asked to, to pass something along from Amy Berry. Um, Phil and Amy are over at Christ Community this morning um, being interviewed for um, their Youth Sunday uh, about loving their neighbor, not loving their neighbor, loving, loving your neighbor, neighbors, loving neighbors. Um, and uh, Amy wanted, wanted me to say that uh, she really appreciates the school, Black Mountain Primary, really appreciates how uh, people responded to the, to the plea for uh, gifts of appreciation for the teachers. And um, she said that our church specifically uh, was noticed and appreciated for what for what they've done. So if you contributed to, to that, um, thank you um, on behalf of Black Mountain Primary. And thank you as a pastor of this church for loving our valley well. Um, the other thing is that I found out this morning that um, Lisa Stewart, a deacon in our church, her mother passed away uh, last night. Uh, she's been in care for, for a while, but things, this was sort of quickly happened. Um, and so if you could be praying for the Stewarts, um, they, they would appreciate that. Um, and also, tomorrow morning, Early, early in the morning, our time, uh, Andrew Brunson, uh, who is a, a missionary uh, in, in Turkey and is uh, from around here, Christ Community is his home church, uh, he will go on trial again, his trial will resume. To what degree, we do not know. We do not know what's going to happen. Um, we want to pray that God would do a miracle and get him released from custody, uh, even if it's temporarily, uh, that he had, even if he has to live in his house and check in every week at the, at the police station or something like that. We just want him out of prison. Obviously, ideally, he'd be able to, to come home to get, a, to get out, but um, that'll happen at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, something like that. If you'd like, uh, there's a, there'll be a prayer vigil uh, in Graham Chapel in Montreat at that time, I think from 2 to 6 in the morning. So if you're feeling up for it, uh, set your alarm and, and head over there, uh, even for a little bit of that time, um, and, uh, and join us in praying for Andrew. So maybe set a reminder in your phone or something, pray tonight before you go to bed. Some of you can set your alarms to get up and head over to Montreat, but certainly then be in prayer in the morning as you wake up. Hopefully, there will be positive developments on that. We're going to pray right now for the Stewarts and for the Brunson family. So pray with us. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are the great shepherd of the sheep and that you watch over your people, that you care for your people. God, we ask that you would make that care felt and experienced by Lisa and Sean as they mourn the loss of Lisa's mother. God, I pray that you'll help them uh, as they process through all of this and also take care of practical things 
for funerals and family and what must be done. God, give them peace uh, to, to deal with those things and the peace of knowing that you're close to them. And God, we pray that you would similarly extend that experience to Andrew Brunson and his family. God, we ask that you would make your, your presence, your closeness apparent to them, that they would know that they do not walk in that courtroom by themselves. God, we ask that you would do a miracle in the heart of the judge, and that uh, Andrew would be released, that he'd be able to get out of prison and, and leave behind a very, very long season of his life. God, we pray that you will give wisdom to uh, our government leaders, senators, representatives, the president, that they would act on Andrew's behalf wisely and justly uh, to the extent that he would come home. God, we pray this morning that uh, our hearts would be open to you, that you would act on our behalf, that you would extend that experience of closeness to us, that as we hear your word, our hearts would be soft and we'd be penetrated, shaped and changed by your word. God, help us not to let the word just pass us by as we stare idly off in the distance, but instead let us be attentive, help us to be cut open by you, and our hearts would be changed and inflamed with love. We do love you, Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. We are in the book of 2 Samuel, uh, in the series on the books of Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 3. We covered uh, through the end of 2 Samuel 1, and what's happening is, is David is solidifying his, his position as king. So in, in 2 Samuel 2, uh, which we're skipping past, he is anointed as king of Judah, which is really just a regional title. He's from the tribe of Judah, but he's uh, meant to be the, whole, the king of all of Israel. Uh, but his, his grip on power only to this point extends to Judah, the tribe of Judah. And Saul's family is not out of the picture all the way. So there's this kind of simmering, bubbling civil war that uh, might be going on. And what we'll see is that God is just very clearly, um, systematically removing all opposition to uh, David's reign without really David having to do a whole lot. Uh, but in chapter 3, we're going to see some little bit of palace intrigue, um, some backstabbing, or belly stabbing, really, uh, as David gets one step closer to the throne. So the story in chapter 3 focuses on this man named Abner, and Abner has been on the other side of the Civil War. He's an older general of Saul's that has stayed faithful to Saul's family, uh, to Saul's son Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth is apparently taking on some of the characteristics of his father and is a bit paranoid because he accuses Abner, a pretty old man, uh, of trying to steal his concubine. And this is uh, not just a matter of a man moving in on a marriage, which it kind of is, but it would be also a, a kind of claim to power. And Abner doesn't, 
he said, this is crazy. Like, this is not happening. I, I'm only here, you're only in your position where you are because I'm helping you. I'm like the general of all your armies. Why would I do this? Uh, this, is, this is not me. You've got the wrong idea. And this is the last straw for Abner. Abner's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be on Team Crazy King anymore. I'm not doing this again. I'm not going to have another Saul. So what he decides to do is defect and to join David's side. So we're going to start reading at verse 12 through 21, and that'll be on the screen for you, uh, and then I'll, we'll stop, and then we'll finish the rest of the chapter. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? And what he's saying there is, it pretty much belongs to me. This, this part of the land, I'm in charge of it. Um, So he says to David, make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, good. David says, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is is you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. But her husband went with her, uh, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. And Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines from the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So Abner has, on one hand, been accused of trying to steal one man's concubine, which is not true. It's a false charge. David has his own issues with a wife. Now, we have in chapter 3 some little hints of some darkness in David's character here. Because the chapter starts with a a list of the wives that, that David has accumulated, wives plural, Um, And multiple marriages are never a good thing in the Old Testament. Bad things inevitably follow. And actually, kings are forbidden from having multiple marriages in the book of Deuteronomy. So we see that David has used multiple marriages as a web of treaties and loyalties. And he's got a long list of sons in the beginning of chapter 3. And we have there the ingredients for problems to follow. And here, when David asks for basically what's his right, Michael, this daughter of Saul, to come, we can see that he's he's perhaps interested in solidifying his power base with the household of Saul. And he is well within his rights to say, I want my wife back. But the, the truth is that Michael has not functionally been his wife for a long, long time. And it's questionable whether she ever really was. She has become married to another man who apparently loves her dearly. And David here does what is his right, but probably isn't 
right. He treats, he treats Michael and this man with harshness, and that will later create problems for him. He does what he does not need to do in order to do what he has the right to do. David's, the seeds of David's downfall are here present for us. But Abner fulfills his obligation, the request. He unites his forces and starts gathering Israel to David uh, on David's behalf. His, his kingdom is coming together, and it's really with David not having to do anything, which has been a theme of 1st and 2nd Samuel. But then there's this other guy in the story, this man named Joab. Joab is David's nephew. And Joab is really good at killing people. And Joab has some beef with Abner. Because in the previous chapter, in the midst of a battle, Abner has killed Joab's brother. And so Joab has that personal enmity with Abner. On top of that, Abner is an accomplished general. He has been people's right-hand man. And Joab can read the tea leaves. If Abner's coming into the camp, where does that leave Joab? So Joab is distraught at what he hears about this alliance. Starting at verse 28, it says, When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashael, his brother, who had also been stabbed in the belly. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. He basically pulls curses from the book of Leviticus, saying, may they forever be unclean people. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They, turned, they buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. So David, um, he judges Abner. He curses him with these curses. Uh, and he and all of his family, that they would be perpetually unclean 
because of what Joab has done, what was needlessly done and done without David's consent. And uh, Joab is judged in the sense that he is basically forced to act like a woman. The, he is told to put on sackcloth and occupy this formal mourning status, which a man of his stature would not normally do. And Joab is judged before all of Israel, and all of Israel gets the picture as much as possible. David did not want this to happen. This was not David's idea. But the damage is done, and violence will ensue because of what's happened to Abner. Joab has struck a blow on behalf of his own fears and anger, theoretically on behalf of David, but has in fact actually hurt David's cause no matter how much David tries to convey that he did not want this to happen. This is uh, quite the twisting and turning of intrigue here. And, and David is sitting in this position, having the, the kingdom slowly delivered to him. One by one, pillar after pillar of the opposition is falling to him. And this, this is the best way for the opposition to fall. Entreaty without more bloodshed. This is exactly what David would want, that the, his enemies would come over to him. And yet this sort of peaceful transferring of power that's happening is interrupted by the act of a violent friend. This violent friend, um, he takes up the sword, theoretically in defense of David, but he's, he's actually consumed by his own agenda, really. Joab is, is driven potentially by two things, maybe both. One, he is bitter towards Abner. He is rightfully bitter towards Abner. Abner has killed his brother, and Joab is afraid. Joab is afraid, potentially, that Abner will take his place. And again, maybe those fears are a bit legitimate. His Abner is an older man with a lot of honor. He's won a lot of battles, and he really could displace Joab. And these kinds of motivations, they are common, and they should in all likelihood be familiar to you as you hear the story. The, the fear of one's own place and privilege is a powerful and desperately and dangerously motivating feeling. The concern for your own reputation, the concern for your own place in the world is really sneaky. It can, and can sort of sneak in on you under the guise of really seemingly good motivations. The desire to do the best that you can, be the best that you can. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be the best. There's really nothing wrong with that. To seek to be excellent is a good and even godly thing. God does things excellently. It is us bearing God's image well to look at the things that we do and to be able to honestly say, it is good. We have done well. But sort of tucked under that motivation is this very easy thing where you don't want to just do things excellently but you want to make sure that everybody recognizes your excellence. Then, then things take a dangerous turn. 
Because you get caught up in craving the approval, the recognition of others. And and suddenly you've transitioned away from wanting to do things excellent and well to making sure that everyone knows you. And this is often a a very poisonous thing to relationships. Because now you, you you can't be happy for anybody else that's anywhere close to your territory. Because anytime somebody else is successful at what they've done, the questions immediately become, how come nobody noticed when I did A, B, or C? How come, how come, nobody, how come nobody said my name when I did those good things? What has that person got that I do not have? So you subtly get directed to the point where anytime anything good happens that you are not named and credited for, it is not a cause for celebration that a good thing has been done in the world. It becomes a cause for disappointment and for resentment. That, that's a, that is a miserable place to be. I know because I've been there. I am often there. I, I compare myself all the time to other people who do similar things to me. I, people who are my age, roughly, and do similar things to me, I set them up as people that I should be better than. I want to beat them. I don't want to just be as, as good as I can be at what I'm doing. I want to be better than them at the similar thing that they're doing, and I want everybody else to notice it. And so I I have friends who are uh, able to get recognized for writing things or for being accepted into academic programs, and some part of me can't even stop to be happy for them because all I can think about is, they're not better than me. Like, why, why, did they, why did nobody notice me? I'm over here being awesome, killing it, way better than they are. And I, I can't for one minute be happy for them or their family uh, because their family gets blessed by this advancement they have. It just becomes about me. That, that's, a, that's a dangerous and poisonous place to be. Because it's not a far leap from there to sticking the knife in somebody. And I don't expect there are future murderers in our midst. I would hope not. Um, And it may not even be direct betrayal that you might find yourself in. But it may be easy at some stage to just say, you know what? If I just do this or that, they get slightly less credit and maybe the tide turns and everything goes my way now. Does anybody here watch The Office? Okay. Bless you. Good. I watch, I still watch The Office, okay? I need to make this clear. I just sort of in perpetuity run through the series, okay? so. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to get on my level. Um, uh, There's an episode where Jim, paper salesman, one of the centers of the show, 
uh, he gets called to a, a paper company to, um, to come work on a sale or whatever. And he has to, for some reason, he's asked to bring Michael with him. And Michael shouldn't, he's left the sales field def- behind, but Michael is, of course, happy to be the center of attention. And they go into this office, and what you ultimately find out is that Michael has fallen in a koi pond that's in the middle of the office. And of course, the whole show is just making fun of this idiot, Michael Scott, who has fallen into the water that's very clearly visible. And so the, the whole office gathers together to look at security camera footage of this happening. And when the film comes up, what they see is Jim basically bumps him in. Like he starts to trip and Michael kind of like reaches out for help and Jim leans back and Michael falls in. He gets soaked. Okay, Jim did not stab Michael in the belly. But Jim is very aware of his position and he wants credit for what he does and who he is. And so his version of stabbing Michael in the gut is to let him fail. Lean back just a little bit. And when you are so focused on your own acclaim, your own position in life, it becomes all too easy just to lean back and to let somebody else fail so that you can receive the credit that you want. Joab is is driven by that fear, but also he's driven by this bitterness. Now, something bad has happened to, to Joab. He lost his brother. And there's no two ways about it. Abner has killed his brother. By any normal accounting of things, Abner is owed something. Now, he's in battle. You know, people are killing people. It happens. But Joab sees his brother dead and Abner with his sword in the hand. And so Joab takes his sword up in response. Now, Joab is standing on the precipice of peace in the kingdom. He is a a gifted, talented, young commander who will certainly outlast Abner. And he can... He can fight alongside Israel's greatest king for a long time. And in that moment, what he chooses instead is his bitterness. He must bring his justice to bear. Bitterness and unforgiveness will kill you. Bitterness and unforgiveness kills Joab. It forever changes the future that he has and the future of his family because Joab cannot accept what David has chosen to do in extending peace to Abner. Joab has to be more vindictive than the king himself. And this is this is exactly how bitterness works. If you are a scorekeeper, as I am, you are constantly rehearsing how others are in your debt, 
and how they have wronged you. And it doesn't matter how far away you can get from them, geographically, in time, distance in other social groups. Some part of you is still ready to pick up the sword at first opportunity. And that will ruin you as surely as it has ruined Joab. It doesn't matter if your complaint is legitimate. It doesn't matter if you're right. That that has nothing to do with the economy of bitterness. Oftentimes, your unforgiveness and your bitterness, it is rooted in you being right. You've done the math correctly. You were wronged. You are owed something. But forgiveness is not pretending like that never happened. Forgiveness is not saying, you know what, it's all right, it's no big deal. That's not biblical forgiveness. And that will, of course, not get rid of your bitterness. Biblical forgiveness is rightly counting what has wrongly been done to you and saying, I will choose to not treat you as you deserve. It does not minimize what has happened to you. It does not, biblical forgiveness doesn't make you say, well, you know what, my brother wasn't that important to me. I guess I can, you've actually done me a little bit of a favor here. It's all right, we can be buddies, we can be pals. There's still a man in the ground, he's still dead, it still hurts, it's still infuriating. But the slow and difficult work of forgiveness is to say, I will put my sword down and instead live in peace with you. It's really hard. It's very hard. Forgiveness is a a long and slow and disciplined road. You cannot just one day in your heart say, I forgive them, and then you're done. You will likely have to come to the moment of saying, I forgive them, I don't know, a thousand times the first year, maybe a thousand times the next year, and maybe the next year it'll be down to 850. It is a long and slow road. If you choose, though, to keep picking up that sword of bitterness, you will die. It will kill you. It will poison you, and it will poison your family. Because bitterness is is not satisfied with just claiming you. It will make you an old, bitter man or woman and you, you can keep it pretty well in check a lot of times. But that, that stone of bitterness will keep rolling downhill. And at the end of your life, you'll ultimately start being bitter about how bitter you've been. How you've wasted your life in bitterness. And that, that tinge of that quiet fury at the world will creep into every relationship that you have. Joab is a a gifted and skilled young man, and that does not save him. This is not a matter of skill and proficiency. If If you are trapped in bitterness, in a prison that you choose again and again, this is not 
this is not a matter of being skilled enough to, for people to not notice. You need to put that sword down so that your life is saved. This is a matter of life and death. And this will surely kill you if you do not leave it behind. Of all the people in the story, and we've seen this time and again, David has the most right of anybody to, to hold things over people's heads. You know, David is, is the one who is most right to pick up the sword and claim what is his. And what makes David remarkable up to this point is that he patiently waits. He patiently waits for God to bring him what is his. David, he's, he's flawed, but he's brilliant and he's winsome. This is, this is a new friend. He's barely even a friend. He's, he's an enemy that has become a friend. And David laments over him. Sure, it's politically expedient for him to lament. But I mean, he puts on all the trappings of sorrow. Because I think David knows what he's lost here. He lost a window where the kingdom might be held in peace and instead has to be sealed now in violence. So he mourns that Abner has died like a criminal. This, this is the, the mark of a true king. This, is, this here in David's life is an echo of what the kings of Israel were meant to be and ultimately what the king of Israel really is like. You, you can lead the rebellion against God. In fact, what, what Paul will say is, you actually do. <laughs> when you're born, you are leading your own pitiful, small-scale rebellion against this king of Israel. I mean, you, you have picked up arms and you are opposed to him actively. And that, that God who you are opposing, by rights, just as David by rights could roll in and crush all of his enemies, this king could roll in and crush any one of us by rights. And instead, what the true king of Israel does is he demonstrates love for people who are actively in rebellion against him so that they might somehow enter into the peace of God and not need their sword any longer. Jesus' own disciples don't understand that the kingdom is like this. At the moment when Jesus is being arrested and taken into captivity, they expect him to take the kingdom by force. And so Peter pulls out his sword and he is ready to go to war for the kingdom. Ready to strike these people who have no right to come and take Jesus. And yet Jesus, the king of Israel, the son of David, tells him to put down his sword, heals his enemies, and allows himself to be ensnared captured, tortured, 
and then murdered by them. Paul will describe this in 2 Corinthians 5 as this wonderful thing that God does. God is unexpectedly good to his enemies and very happy to make treaties with those who rebel against him. He changes them and transforms them. 2 Corinthians 5. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us that message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Abner is a real enemy of David, and David makes peace with him for the sake of the kingdom the sake of his people, for the sake of Abner. God is this way. You can be alienated and removed from him, and Paul says that God is reconciling himself to the world. There is rupture between two parties, between God and the world, and in Christ, God is bringing reconciliation. No matter what kind of enemy that you've been, whether you have been a Christian or not, God's move is to bring you closer to Him. No matter how embittered you may be, how wronged you may be, you have wronged God more definitively and more clearly, and the way that He treats you is not to pick up the sword and run you through, but to bring you closer to Him. And though everything in us in our economy of ideas says that the wrongdoer should be punished, Jesus points to himself as the king of the kingdom and becomes the punishment for your wrongdoing so that you might be unified with God. The unexpected move of God in all of the biblical story is that we who are alienated from him, opposed to him, stone cold against him, God comes and loves us before we've yet taken one step towards Him. If you are a Christian today caught in sin, your temptation may be to think, if I can get this sin right, I can come home and be with God again. But God knew you when you were an enemy. And He loved you even then. And he died for you in that sorry, sorry state. You do not need to clean yourself up for him. He wants to bring you home anyway. If you have never known Jesus, you, you can give yourself over to Joab's way. You know, this focus on you getting yours and making sure everybody recognizes it too. You can pursue that 
for all of your life. Lots of people do. And lots and lots of people get to the end of their life or these moments of crises in their life when they have everything and they still somehow say, why do I feel like I have nothing? You may be rightfully feeling wronged and your bitterness, the poison that you are drinking, it will never make you feel made right again. But God presents himself to you as a king who would bring you home. Who you can trust to do justly and to do right and to establish his kingdom in righteousness and truth for all of his people. I don't have a resolution for you of all the things that you feel are against you and how you've been wronged. But I do know that this king who puts himself on the cross has made clear to you in word and deed that God does not intend to let any of the powers of sin go unpunished. And if you can't figure out how to make yourself just feel better about the wrong that's been done to you, the invitation is to just trust Jesus. You, you may not feel like you can forgive or to let go, but can you trust Jesus? Can you trust this king to be your king? Can you trust this king, whether you feel near or far from God, to be the God who will always be himself, reconciling enemies, putting death to death, crushing sin? Can you trust this Jesus, crucified and risen king, who might always be scooping you closer, even when you're trying to push him away? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. But even in the, the palace intrigue of Israel, we can, we can see you. We can see this figure in the middle of the story who outshines even the hero, David. David may have his flaws, these recipes for disaster. But you have no flaw. You are more generous. You are more righteous and just. God, help us to hear your word and then to hear your voice clearly. Help us to see that you allowed Joab's sword to be buried deep in your own side. You allowed all the powers of sin and death to pour themselves out on you so that we might be people who can be covenanted to you in peace. There is no one like you, Jesus. Whether we've called you our Lord, whether we've called you a good person, this morning you put yourself before us, reconciling God, outshining all other options. Father, I pray that you 
would show yourself to be gentle as David shows himself to be gentle at the end of the chapter. Be gentle with us. We are so addicted to bitterness and fear, to power and position. God, by your Holy Spirit, help us to lay those things aside. Gently pry our fingers off of that sword. God, I pray that we would be reconciled to you, that every person in this room, that as the passage in 2 Corinthians goes on to say, that we would today hear your voice and not harden our hearts. Make our hearts soft this morning and help us to respond. We love you, Jesus. You are the best king. We thank you for winning us. Help us to trust you forever. Amen.